Good evening and welcome to this week's Big Tent live event, part of our live online event series from the University of Oxford, itself part of the Humanities Cultural Programme, one of the founding stones for the future Stephen A. Schwarzman Centre for the Humanities. My name's Wes Williams and I'm the director of TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. I'm also a professor in French based at St Edmund Hall. We at TORCH are bringing you this event programme online and we hope that you're safe and well during this time. Everyone is welcome in our big tent as we explore big ideas together. Tonight, we bring you translation and retranslation, priorities, discoveries, pleasures, in which two leading translators from Russian, Oliver Reddy and Sasha Dugdale, will discuss their work. If you would like to put forward any questions to our speakers during the event tonight, please pop them in the comments box in the YouTube chat below. We encourage you to submit these as early as you can so that we have time to answer as many as we can as, at the Q&A, which will follow at the end of their discussion. They will be joined by our chair for tonight's event. And I'm delighted, it's an honor to host and welcome Professor Katriona Kelly. I'll just wait while she comes on screen. Hello, Katriona was a close colleague at New College Born and brought up in Russian, uh, sorry, in London, she studied Russian there and at the University of Voronezh in what was then the USSR. She has taught at CIS in London as well as here in Oxford and has written more books that you could shake a whole sheaf of sticks at. Her research has done much to expand the field of Russian literature and Russian cultural history more broadly, encompassing modernism, gender history, the history of childhood, national identity, the recent history of cities, Leningrad and St. Petersburg in particular, and the institutional and production history of Russian and Soviet cinema. She's also published extensively on the preservation of architectural heritage. Um, and more germane to our discussion today, Katrina has worked on oral history and published literary translations, particularly of poetry. She's been a member of juries for literary, film, book, and translation prizes. So it's hard to think of anyone better to chair this session and to introduce our two prize-winning translator scholars in turn. Welcome to you all and thank you again for joining us this evening. I'm going to sit back and listen and return you just return just at the end to say goodbye. Uh, thank you, Katrina. Over to you. Thank you very much, Wes, for that extremely generous introduction. And before I introduce in more detail the two participants in the dialogue, I would like to thank very much everyone at, at Torch, as well as Wes, Liz and Maya for their tremendous amount of help and their fantastic welcome that they've given to us for this event. I'd also like to thank the Ilchester Fund of the Faculty of Medieval and Modern Languages at the University of Oxford that's helped with some financial sponsorship for the event. But I'll now turn to introducing, first of all, Sasha Dugdale. Um, so you'll see her on, on screen in a second. And Sasha is a writer in residence at St. John's College, Cambridge. Uh, and she has an extremely distinguished career as a, a publishing poet and a prize-winning poet also. So recent prizes include the Forward Prize for Best Single Poem in 2016 and Chumley Award. And as many of you will know, um, she was also shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize 
um, this year, which is a fantastic achievement. And alongside that, she's translated a real whole list of things, including various Russian dramatists for the royal court and um, a list of really important poets of the present day, Tatiana Shebina, for example, for Blood Axe books. And she has recently um, completed a collection by Maria Stepanova, The War of the Beasts and the Animals, which will be out also from Blood Axe, um, I gather, later this year. So uh, a fantastically... Um, talented and wide-ranging translator, and we have, uh, are lucky to have an equally uh, talented and wide-ranging translator only of prose in uh, Dr. Oliver Reddy, uh, who is, I'm just going to wait till he appears on screen as well, which will happen in a few seconds. And Oliver is the research fellow in Russian literature and culture at St. Anthony's College, Oxford. Um, and so he's a specialist in Russian literature who's published on the history of folly um, the ways that writers have represented folly in recent Russian writing, a fantastically interesting study. But he's also very widely noted as a translator, including for a retranslation of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, which came out a few years ago. And just to not sparing Oliver's blushes to quote from A.N. Wilson, who is a not notably uh, kind and friendly critic, but who described this as um, a genuine uh, uh, event, this translation. And um, a truly great translation. Um, this English version really is better, I think, not than the original, but the ones who, that had come before um, was, was intended. And Oliver's also translated Vadim Sharov, which uh, had an equally uh, approving review. I mean, indeed, a, a very enthusiastic review from um, Rachel Polonsky um, as his the rendering uh, of the clarity and directness of Sharov's prose was, was absolutely wonderful. So we have two first-rate translators. The final thing that I'm going to say before handing over to them is simply to beat the drum of Oxford Modern Languages and to say that both Sasha and um, Oliver actually studied Russian at Oxford and even attended um, some of my own translation workshops here. And of course, the translation uh, which is generally one of the main ways of teaching teaching modern languages here. Uh, it's absolutely great to see people who have continued with this, and it's long since we could claim any purchase at all on their achievements, but at least kind of getting them enthusiastic to begin with, I think we possibly can claim some small part of that. So with that, I shall hand over to Sasha and Oliver for what I'm sure will be an absolutely fascinating conversation. And please don't forget to keep the questions coming. We'll take about 10 minutes or so at the end to deal with those questions. So please, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Katrina. That was a very warm introduction for both of us. We'll try to live up to them. Um, and thank you uh, for coming up. Uh, and speaking to Katrina, thank you for coming up with this idea in the first place. It, it couldn't have been better timed because I had just been reading Sasha's wonderful collection, which was just mentioned, uh, Deformations. I'm not sure whether that comes through in the picture, but um, uh, I was incredibly struck by what a daring and bold collection of poetry that this is. I don't know whether we'll be able to get on to, the, to where translation and poetry um, cross in your work, Sasha. I hope, I hope we will at some point. Um, but we'll stick to translation as our, as our, as our main focus. And um, Sasha and I have known each other for, for, for some time. We both, um, as Professor Kelly was saying, we both studied here in Oxford. Um, we then were in, in Moscow at the same time. Uh, Sasha was at the British Council um, when it was flourishing in Moscow and she was driving its cultural programme. I was at the Moscow Times, not very far away, also involved in Moscow's cultural life. Um, 
In fact, we both had very close friendships in, in, in the same household in Moscow of, of a pair of dramatists who sadly died a few years ago, um, Yelena Gremina and Mikhail Ugarov, whom Sasha in particular was very close to, and which I think um, was, was crucial to your translation career because you then became heavily involved in um, the, the documentary theatre program in, in, in Russia um, and translated a lot of contemporary drama. So in a way, we've moved along sort of parallel paths, um, uh, a great deal in common in our careers. But um, before we get on to perhaps the similarities, I thought maybe we could start by the difference. I mean, my, my, my focus, as, as has been said, has always been prose, not necessarily intentionally, but it seems that that's how um, it's panned out. And in fact, a very particular tradition of Russian prose, so beginning perhaps with Gogol, going on to Dostoevsky and uh, those writers' um, descendants in, in, in contemporary writing, which is perhaps my main focus. Um, I've always wanted, as you have, to, to bring new, new names into, um, into English. Whereas you, Sasha, have really worked across a, a broad range of genres, um, poetry, uh, drama, uh, fiction, nonfiction, as well, of course, as your poetry. So perhaps begin by just asking you to talk about um, what it's like to, to, to move between those different genres as, as a translator. I mean, how distinct in your mind are those activities? How, how different are the priorities that you have in your mind when you, when you turn from one genre to, to another? Thanks, Oliver. Um, what a great question. Um, I, I've always, until quite recently, I've been a translator of poetry and drama, and both of those are are really voiced mediums, at least in my mind they are. They come from a, a they both have oral roots. And so um, they're all about shaping, um, shaping sound. And um, they seem very similar practices to me. I've always been really scared of prose and prose translation. Um, and the uh, amount of scrupulous work that goes into it um, so taking on in memory, memory was quite frightening for me. Um, but when, uh, quite recently, well, it was a few years ago now, I read uh, your translation of Crime and Punishment to my son as a book at bedtime. I don't think it's a very suitable book at bedtime, but it seemed to work for him. But I realised when I was reading it that it was actually also a work of voice. I think that's the first time when I, I realised that translating Russian prose could also be about shape and voice and uh, and the sort of oral qualities of um, of literary work. So in fact, maybe the difference isn't so so huge. But that's certainly how I've always seen it. That it's um, that the mediums that I've always practised have been to do with speaking aloud. And in fact, that's how I translate. I talk aloud to myself, which rules out working in any library or cafe. I completely agree with what you say about voice and orality in, in Russian prose as being just as important as, as in the other genres. And probably that's one, one of the things that's always drawn me to Russian literature. That's, it's, um, it's always seems to be a literature in tension with the very idea of literature, sort of books against bookishness in a way and trying to, trying to preserve um, vividness of the spoken voice. Um, you have all of these, not just unreliable narrators, but um, often crazy narrators of various kinds. <laughs> We'll get on to Gogol later, but just flipping it around, what would you say to those who, like me, might be nervous of translating poetry, who, who, who stick in one genre and um, avoid, avoid, avoid poetry? Do, do, you, do, you, do, you see, do you see your own um, uh, work as a poet in English as a sort of crucial um, 
qualification to translate Russian Russian poetry? I don't think I do uh, on balance. I think it's quite often said that you have to be a poet to translate poetry, but I don't think you have to be uh, a published poet or perhaps even a poet who writes poetry. I think that the act of translating poetry makes you a poet. So it's, um, there, are cert there are certainly qualities that you bring to translation of poetry, which are very particular, but they're not, I don't think that, you have to, to, to be um, published or think of yourself as a poet in order to bring those qualities, I suppose. Of course, you had a, um, a long and very um, revolutionary stint as editor at Moscow at um, um, Modern Poetry and Translation. So not, not translations just from Russian, but from all over the world and from many um, countries whose poetry had not often been translated before into English. What were the kind of conversations that you would have with translators of, of poetry who were submitting poems to MPT, Modern Poetry and Translation, what kind of things would you end up discussing when it came to evaluate, evaluating um, a translation of poetry? Well, it's a really interesting thing because every poem brings its own um, way of, I'm sorry, my dog is just outside. <laughs> every poem brings its own, um, well, I think it's a bit like Wordsworth said, you know, it creates its own taste or every poet creates the landscape in which they're going to be appreciated and I think that's true of translation particularly um, from languages like Russian where there isn't maybe as much as we'd, we'd like particularly contemporary work in translation so the translator is also thinking about as they translate the poem about how to create a, a, a future for the translation um, in an English language publication English language tradition and culture and I think that's something that, um, well, I know that we're going to come on to talk about, but it's something that occupies you a great deal as well. You know, how to create that, um, the atmosphere ready for, um, for the work that you're translating. If you know the answer, please tell me. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we could, we could indeed turn now because in a way we, we're, we're both engaged at the moment on quite similar uh, tasks of presenting and bringing into English. Um, a long work of prose. Um, in your case, this is the work you just mentioned, um, which people may not be aware of. I'm sorry if I hold it up, it's probably, the, 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 but this is In Memory of Memory by Maria Stepanova. So a poet, she's famous as a poet, in particular of the ballad form. Um, but this is a 500 page work of, should we call it an essay or in any case, nonfiction, um, dealing in the area of family history, but above all, as the title in memory of memory suggests, interrogating what the, the contemporary fascination with memory says about us, um, what are its um, dangers perhaps um, in terms of how, 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 how it takes us away from the present. Well, you can tell me more about that. But in, in any case, this is a going to be undoubtedly one of the main publications of the year um, from, from Russian into English coming out with um, Fitzcarraldo who have recently had such amazing success with um, women from the Slavic world with Olga Tokarchuk and uh, Alexievich and now, and now Maria Stepanova, I'm, I'm sure. Um, and I've been working on continuing with my projects uh, of translating the, the novelist Vladimir Sharov, who died sadly um, in 2018. He would have been 69 next, next month. So he died quite young. Um, Again, uh, a novelist dealing with the past. Um, he was a historian before he became a novelist. He was also a poet before he became a novelist. It's very important, often forgotten about him. Um, 
but in both cases, um, authors who um, are coming from a very specific cultural context and present all sorts of challenges to us to bring them over into English. But the other big similarity here is that we both knew our authors, or you know your author, Maria Stepanov, you're in touch with her a lot. I, I became very close to Sharov in his, in his last year. So I thought perhaps we could talk about this question of um, what is gained by developing a close relationship, friendship, collaboration with the author you're working on. Um, I, I was quite struck, Sasha, in your um, translator's note at the back of In Memory of Memory. You say, um, uh, Maria, Stepanov, Maria Stepanova's In Memory of Memory is a living text and the English translation has been changed and modified from the original Russian in collaboration with the author. Um, that sounds fascinating. Can you tell, talk us through that? What, what would, in what way did it change through your collaboration with the author? Um, I've just been reading this week uh, the Sharoff novel that you've just translated. And in fact, there's so many parallels in the, the occupation of translating these books. Neither, neither are kind of cool little novelettes um, um, or kind of... They're, they're, there's whole worlds, they're both world creators, I think. And so in order to translate, you uh, you have to uh, enter into this world, in effect, this imaginative world and um, begin translating. And when Maria Stepanova asked me if I would translate Memory of Memory, um, I I was, I have to say, I, I, I was really anxious. I, I didn't know whether I should take it on. I was quite frightened. Uh, it's such a huge book, it's such a huge world, and it's such a complex book that I had all sorts of misgivings. And I'm very good friends with Maria, and I will talk about that in a minute, but um, I was very tempted to say no. Um, and then I think I took it on partly in a spirit of friendship because um, I wanted to, to, I suppose, make that act of friendship for, um, for Maria, but also I took it on because um, there's a sort of a certain amount of serendipity, I think, in translation. And you think it's it's almost like, you know, which boat shall I get on and where will it take me? And I thought, well, I know if I get on this boat, it will take me somewhere I've never been and I will get a lot out of being on the boat. And so I took it on in that spirit. But it was a kind of terrifying um it novel to translate and Maria does call it a novel, although, you know, for many people it would be, I think, seen as nonfiction. It's actually uh, a novel of her family um, within the context of, of Soviet and Russian history. Um, it was incredibly important being friends with Maria and being able to talk to her about the book. We spent, we spent a long time, I've known Maria for many years and we spent a long time having those Russian conversations in the kitchen where you talk for hours and hours about all sorts of things. I mean, you solve all the problems of the world. And um, so bringing that, that I, I had her voice in my head and that's always been very useful for translating her poetry because I keep hearing her when I read the Russian, but it was incredibly useful for, for a memory of memory because I, I just, it felt like a long conversation in her kitchen. So I just kept thinking that every time I, I was every, at every point when I started to struggle with the prose, I just started thinking, this is something Maria might've said. And if I hadn't understood it, she would have explained it and I could have entered into a conversation with her about it. So that's the sort of, um, the kind of, the way I took on the, the translating. And then there were, um, 
there were all sorts of fantastic moments. Maria's a poet and her prose is incredibly poetic. And she said when I started translating that it was up to me to recreate it as poetry or poetic prose in English. And I took her at her word and I tried very carefully to, to make it poetic prose in English as far as I was able. And that's difficult because at the one, there's a sort of, um, I don't know, a spectrum of possibilities. At the one end, there's a very free translation. At the other end, you're very, you've, you've got the Russian and you're trying very hard to, to convey what the Russian says. And in Maria's case, often very theoretical arguments, uh, arguments about memory, um, about um, um, the visual, visual arts and the way that perception and memory are um, interrelated. And, and, and those were exceptionally hard to translate and keep poetic. Um, that because you're sort of trying to deal with theoretical arguments and keep them whole and keep them understandable and at the same time make them interesting, make them lively and um, and also reproduce the Russian. So that was quite that that sort of spectrum and approach to translation was really hard. So Maria and we we knew from the start that it was going to be a translation for an English language audience. And um, Maria had already had the book translated into German and the German issue had been edited quite heavily. Um, so for example, the Charlotte Salomon um, chapter in, in Memory of Memory, which is quite detailed, sort of quite detailed history of Charlotte Sam, um, Salomon, the German Jewish artist, that was cut short in the German issue uh, edition, as far as I know, because the German audience uh, was thought to have more understanding and knowledge of her, her work. So there were all sorts of small changes made for that German edition. And again, for the English edition, we, we tried very hard to um, adjust certain elements um, in, in the English edition, more not so much the big arguments, but the smaller um, moments, just adjust them so that they work for a, a, an English language audience. And that was particularly because in memory of memory, unlike the Sharov, and this is something I'd really like to talk to you about, the Sharov is very focused on, on Russia um, and it, it's kind of looking in and it's, whereas Maria Stepanova's book looks outwards and it's all about, I think, um, making links between uh, uh, um, this family unit and then this Russian history and then this sort of European history or international history. Um, and so there were parts to it which were for a Russian audience, but about the outside world. And so needed to be reframed for an audience living in that outside world. Um, and so there was some, some small sleights of hand around that. Um, really not, not things I can particularly enumerate more tiny things where you just adjust the wording very slightly because you knew that everybody knows that so but they don't know this so we need to turn it around so I like, I like I like the phrase sleight of hand I think that that's very um <laughs> yes it covers covers a multitude of sins and virtues in translation I think that, that kind of that, that, that area of hidden activity that the reader won't know about that's so important to the finished product yeah Tell me about the Sharov translation because that is uh, yeah. it's a, a mammoth task. I've just been, as I said, I've just been reading it, and what's remarkable for me is it, it's an incredibly Russian um, landscape. And as I was reading it uh, in translation, I, I understood it absolutely. The translation is completely translucent. I mean, it's beautifully translated. Everything 
just so elegantly translated and and wonderful the rhythms and the sound of the prose is wonderful but I know that world so I could almost slip through the prose and see it and I wondered if you thought a lot about your audience perhaps those um, readers who don't know Russian Soviet culture so well um, you've got I, I know you've you'll probably talk about the footnotes because they're an art unto themselves. Um, yeah, well, I actually asked, so, I mean, Sharov, yeah, just to place him a little bit, because I, I, I'm sure that um, many people won't have, won't, won't, won't be too aware of what kind of um, novels he writes. Um, in fact, in the, in the same year that he died in the in the, the new Oxford history of Russian literature that came out, they, they, they said that he invented a new form of writing about the past, which, is not a small claim, and I think, but I think I think true. Um, in fact, a new form of novel, in my, in my view, um, but based very much on um, his historical knowledge. He, he began as a historian of medieval Russia, and so although his novels tend to be more about the modern period um, and informed by tragedies, again linking with the Stepanova in his own in his own family, to two thirds of his his larger family. Was shot or died in the camps by his by his by his um, by, to, to quote him. Um, his novels are rooted in in a much um, in a much older understandings of what he sees as the recurring um, motivations, driving forces of Russian history, um, a sense of Russia as a chosen people, eschatology, uh, messianism, leading as he sees to recurring cycles of revolutions, schisms, civil wars. It's a, it's a sort of mirror image of the kind of Putinist view of, Rus of Russian history is continuous where you sort of write out that revolutions with Sharov, it's, it's all about repeating schisms, uh, revolutions, following similar patterns. Um, and, uh, um, and so the, 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 perhaps his most uh, famous book in Russia is, is called The, the Rehearsals. And, um, uh, I spent quite a lot of time with Sharov in his, in his last years, and one of our trips was to the New Jerusalem Monastery, uh, which is outside outside Moscow, um, which was uh, founded by Patriarch Nikon back at the time of the schism in the Orthodox Church, which Sharov is the, the sort of the main event in Russian history, I think, one of, one of them, um, in the 17th century. And the idea was that Nikon would create this monastery um, to replicate and the lands around the monastery to replicate the holy lands. So this idea of Russia as the third Rome after Rome, after Constantinople, the new kind of uh, chosen land um, where salvation would happen. And so in, in, in that novel, which when we went to visit the site, um, Nikon comes up with this idea of creating a kind of mystery play um, in which peasants would from, from the local area would be trained to play all the different parts in the gospel, except that nobody would be allowed to play Christ. And so they start acting out the gospels and acting around Christ in the hope that by acting out the gospels, Christ will eventually come and bring salvation. Of course, Christ doesn't come. The, the roles get handed down from generation to generation through the centuries until we eventually get to the, to the 20th century. And within the troop of actors, peasants, all sorts of um, disagreements and, and, and uh, um, especially about what God wants from us, what he wants us to be doing, how, how he wants us to save ourselves and break out and you get sort of killing bouts and cycles of violence. Anyway, that's to give, um, in a way, his most simple plot in the different novels I've translated to give an idea of, of, of the kind of novelist he is. And as you say, Sasha, to come back to, 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 um, to your point, because I, I do say this in my foreword to the current translation, 
how translatable is Sharov in the sense of, um, you know, you or I know enough about the historical background to be able to place um, place this um, this kind of fiction, and to be able to have a sense of where Sharov is departing from the historical record, where his fantasy is taking off, where he's perhaps not departing so much as filling in areas of Russian history that he thinks have always been left out of the textbooks. We would have a sense of that. You know, somebody who doesn't have a background in Russian studies couldn't be expected to do that. Um, does that mean that we shouldn't translate a writer like that? And I, I'm not trying to make a comparison, but when we read the Divine Comedy, we have the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. We have an incredibly intricate network of politics in, 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 in Florence at that time that you know, requires to the, first, to the person um, opening, opening Dante for the first time, a huge amount of footnote reading to be able to, to, be able to, to orientate yourself. Um, but of course, you don't have to do all that work. There's a huge amount in Dante which comes out, which is just purely human drama, um, as there is in, in Sharov. So, um, so certainly I feel it's absolutely worth bringing into English. I'm also realistic about the fact that it is off-putting to have all of this historical background. Um, I try to um, uh, I try to sort of smooth the reader's path by using footnotes. I mean, I think for a long time there has been a sense that especially with fiction, you don't want footnotes, footnotes break the spell, which is true, of course, in a way. Sharov himself, when we talked, um, he never wanted me to use sh sh footnotes. Um, but I think we had a very similar issue, I think, with you and Melissa Stepanova in the sense that he totally, it was one of total trust and freedom from his point of view. He really um, was there to help me to explain, to talk about his work in a way that you know, has stayed with me and you know, I've got six more novels of his to go if I go through all of them. And I have his kind of, those, those conversations in my head to, to help me, um, but he, he never wanted to impose um, a solution. Anyway, he didn't think you should have footnotes, but it seems to me actually that, especially in maybe in Anglophone publishing, there's an increasing appetite for footnotes or endnotes. I particularly found that with my Crime and Punishment, in which I, I did a, a lot of endnotes and um, readers have been extremely appreciative of my efforts to contextualize the novel in, in, in 19th century Russia at that time. So I think, I think there's more of a willingness for that kind of added value that comes with, um, with, 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 with additional material where, where, where you, know, you don't have to go to the notes, but if you do want to understand more about the background, um, then it's, it should be worth going to them. So you don't just go there for two words, but for you know, the chunky paragraph telling you about what the schism was or whatever. So, so I have come to believe that footnotes and then notes um, are, are important. Um, but um, yes, otherwise, um, I hope, I mean, I've tried to involve um, other intellectuals, other writers, um, Russianists, um, to, to provide, to, 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 uh, to get them interested in, in Sharov, to, to write about him in, in the press. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I don't really know what to do in order to in order to in order to bring him to a, to to a greater audience. Um, it's difficult, but um, but certainly it feels like it's worth doing. Yeah. I wasn't sure, and I think Maria wasn't sure either, um, how a memory of memory would be received, and mm -hmm. we were. I was, we were both quite anxious about it, I think, particularly because it took a very long time to translate. I mean, like the Sharaf, it's a, it's, it's a long period of your life. And I was working through it 
thinking, I, I don't know what the audience looks like for this book. I mean, it's me. I like it. I'm, I'm the ideal audience and I'm really enjoying it. But, um, but who else is going to read it and who's going to have the, um, the, the time and the sort of investment into it to want to get all the way through it? And I don't mean that I was doubting its quality. I simply was just interested, I suppose, and it was taking such a long time and it was such a huge effort. And in some ways, um, I think the response has been, has really confounded us. There's been a definite um, audience for it and people have really enjoyed it. But I think one of the things that's really helped is uh, actually oddly lockdown. I think the book appearing in lockdown um, has meant that a lot of readers have had time and they've also had other bigger um, big, bigger experiences that they bring to it. So they're not trying to fit it into busy lives or they're trying to fit it into a situation which is very unreal um, around the world. And I, I wonder if that hasn't affected the reception of, of In Memory of Memory a little bit. Just also a lot of people are thinking about um, the past and their lives. It's a point of reflection. Um, so in that sense, I think yeah, the, the circumstances in which people are, are, are reaching the book have, have helped it. And I don't by any means want to imply that, I, but I certainly was worried. I was worried, first of all, that, you know, would it find an audience? And then would, would people, what would they think about the translation? Because it's a difficult book. And um, so it used to keep me up at night, is what I suppose I'm trying to say. So it's been uh, good that so far, I think people have, have, have found it, have seen what it is. And I think it will be also partly for the reason you gave that, that, that this in memory of memory really does engage with um, uh, Western cultures and, and theory in particular around photography, for example, around art and memory in a very direct way, which is unusual in, 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 in books that have come into translation from Russian. Um, I would just pick up on, on whether Sharov is an insular. I think actually he's not. Um, although the, the novels do seem to turn into Russia, actually they turn in only to sort of almost go down to more universal level. I mean, in yeah. the end, he, he, himself, he himself said that Russian um, history is a commentary on the Bible. So you actually get you know, this, this idea of Russia as the third Rome. Um, Russians are the chosen people. That leads Sharov, who's you know, um, partly Jewish background or of Jewish background, in fact, sorry, um, to to make all sorts of comparisons with the fate of the Jewish people, for example, um, in the Bible. But there's also, at least in every novel, there's always a, a one major character who comes from a different culture. So in the rehearsals, the um, the theatre director who's employed by Nikon to stage the plays is, is a Breton. Um, in, in Before and during, there's Madame de Stahl, plays a, plays a large part, bridging the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And then in this latest novel, um, B.S. Children, the one that you've just been reading, it's, um, it's really about colonialism, it's about Russian Empire and their engagement with the Northern peoples, with uh, the, the small indigenous peoples, the Nenets, the Enets and others in the far Siberian North in a way that I find very interesting because I, I traveled that part of the world at the same time we were in Russia and I saw I, I saw a lot of this with my with my own eyes of what's happened to those people. So um, I, I don't think he I don't think he is insular, I think, um, but it, it looks that way. Um, yeah, I, I'd certainly agree with that. It's, I mean, it's brilliant. It's like an enormous, sprawling, wonderful thing. But I think that, you know, knowing Russia certainly helps to get, get into it. Yes. And in fact, when you mentioned the Yenets and the Ninets, there's just been an exhibition at the British Museum about the Arctic peoples. And there's quite a lot about uh, 
Arctic peoples from uh, well, what is like the post-Soviet space in effect. And, um, and so reading those parts mm. in the novel just reminded me of that. And of course, those peoples are uh, entirely sort of migratory. They're not at all mm. um, limited to one space or one kind of political space or... Sasha, I want to go back to what you were saying before about, um, you said that when, you, when you're translating it, you never doubt the quality of what you're translating. I always doubt the quality of everything I'm translating, <laughs> but isn't it a natural part? I want to talk more now about the process of translation, what, how, um, you know, the stages when we work through a big book like this. Um, you, you were using a word about like struggling. And I mean, I find the actual, the, the initial phases of when you're getting that first draft down, it's a constant, um, you're always arguing with the author. I mean, I am anyway, talking to the author and sometimes arguing with them in my head and wishing maybe something was different or something, you know. Is, is that just me? Or do you, do, you, do you also find that you're sort of wrestling with the text in those initial phases? How, how does the actual process from the first draft to the completed? There's uh, a really interesting point, particularly with Russian, uh, well, I see it in the poetry, in the drama and in memory of memory. If you were to start a sentence off in Russian, and you read the beginning of the sentence, if you were then to go away and complete the sentence, you could almost guarantee that you wouldn't complete it as the author had completed it. There's never, for me, there's almost never any um, cr crossover of, I've, I find that repeatedly, but I mean, in the drama, it often happens that I, the, the, a phrase will begin and I'll think, oh, I know where this is going. And then it, it won't, it'll go somewhere utterly different. And, um, I really like that quality. Um, it, it completely, uh, it's always very humbling because I start something, I think I know what I'm doing and then I don't know what I'm doing at all. And I don't seem to ever learn what I'm doing either. I don't seem to improve on that. It's, um, and that's brilliant. It's completely um, brilliant because you're, you're never quite in control. And I, I, I really love that feeling. I, and it's there very much in, in Marsha's poems, which, um, and I, I'll set out translating them or I'll set out reading them. And um, even if I've read them and I've, I've sort of thought about them and I've made notes on them, when I set out translating them, it's still exactly the same thing that I start and I think, oh, I know, I think where this is going and it, it takes me somewhere else. And um, so there's always, so this, the struggle is between the, the two voices, I suppose, my voice and the author's voice and how um, um, mm. how we wrestle with those kind of angels, I suppose, is really, is, is really, really interesting to me. Um, and, and kind of in a sort of philosophical way, not just in the sort of sense of a day-to-day -day translation process, but, um, but, but just that the feeling of, of, of never quite knowing another person well enough to uh, encapsulate them, them always coming back with something surprising, which is, um, which which is why I often think of translation in a way as a sort of very human relationship, something like a, a you know a friendship or a partnership. You you know, and knowing that you that you're always in a sort of dialogue of equals um, is. And how is how does that how does that struggle between your voice and the author's voice tend to? I don't know, resolve itself or I mean, what do you tend to be guided by at that point? I mean, if you can never go to a Russian conference about translation without hearing the word otsibyatina about a million times. Yeah. So interesting Russian doesn't have a kind of word for this sort of autonomous self, but it has this word for in translation, putting stuff in from yourself in a in a in a bad way. This is something one shouldn't do. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. Um, 
bring your own personality into it um, gratuitously. Um, you have a similar allergy to the idea of Otsubiatina. I imagine you don't know, you don't in a way. It sounds like you think this kind of dialogue between voices is a productive one, that you know your voice is equally important. I don't know if you could translate if you thought of yourself as a neutral, empty space. Um, there has to be uh, an element of your voice in there. And I think if you thought that there wasn't, then that would be a problem as well. Um, so in some senses, it's coming clean about, you know, where, mm -hmm. where you're standing and what you're feeling and saying. Um, I, I, do, there's, I do think there's, there's sort of, there's obviously the, the Keatsian negative capability thing, which is very helpful for me as a, as a thought about translation, that you're never uh, reaching the certainties, that you're letting them come to you. But in a very practical way, and I don't know if you find this, that my, the difference can you between- say that, Can you say that again, Sasha? It was really interesting. I didn't quite catch it. You're about, about the negative capability and how that applies. Um, that you're, you're, you know, you're not reaching for certainties, they're mm -hmm. coming to you. Um, or, and that, that strikes me as a, a good way to think about translation in a very practical way, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts of it. I'll quite often find that I'll translate a page and then I'll go back over it and the weakest points are where I've added stuff. And I've actually gone back and quite sort of scraped it back again to where it was in the Russian. And that, that never fails to be the case, that if I've added anything, I'll end up pulling back and taking it out. So I do understand the sort of resistance to Atsibetina. It seems, um, and you, you kind of, that quite often following the line is, is better than not following the line. Although that's a sort of very nuts and bolts approach, I think, and not necessarily anything to do with the, the bigger thoughts about translation. How about you? How does that well, I mean, in, in, in this most recent work, I've been really helped by the fact that, so Sharov is a, um, in many ways, I mean, I, he, he's not typical of late Soviet writers because I, I don't think he, he had all the neuroses that many late Soviet prose writers often had about being unpublished or, and or being un, unrecognized geniuses in a way. Sharov is not defensive in, in the way that I recognize from many writers of that era. Perhaps I'm being unfair, but in the, in the um, but, but the, in terms of publication process, it's very typical because he starts writing in the early 80s with no hope of being published. And, um, and in a way, he writes kind of without any restrictions. He doesn't even use punctuation. His wife has added the punctuation in all his writing, apparently. <laughs> he doesn't even use full stops or commas. So, and when you hear him, when I heard him read his works, it was like a sort of liturgical torrent of language where you couldn't really put any, uh, it really affected the way I then wanted to translate him and made me think a lot about punctuation and the extent to which I was tidying him up in English. And I'm sure that in the future, hopefully there'll be other translators of Shadoff who will take a more radical view and use probably less tidy punctuation than I have. But um, anyway, the, the, what I'm trying to get at is that there's been a kind of ongoing editing process in his, in, in his, throughout his career. So that as he became more better known in the last years of his life, and his works began to get republished. They would also get re-edited and re-read by him. And with this particular novel, Be As Children, I've been able to compare the original version that came out in 2008, which I read then, and then the one he revised in 2017. And although he told me, oh, they were just tiny revisions, actually they're really revealing revisions about things I suspected were his priorities already, but it sort of confirmed it for, for me, such as, you know, to avoid at all costs any kind of 
obviously literary language to to be as direct as possible in in in, in voice and to be as immediate as possible to be as sort of definite in a way so there's a really interesting tension in his writing between the sort of the complexity of the material the entanglement of the material and of the plots and of the stories of his characters and the kind of lucidity he's aiming for in expression which is something i find really attractive in a way that you know his writing is never more his expression is never more complicated than it needs to be. Sometimes it does need to be complicated because the actual thing he's describing is very complicated, but it's not gratuitously complicated in any way. And, it, and, and so comparing the, the versions sort of gave me, has given me a real steer in terms of when I revise my own translation, I try to do this to work along the same lines in a way that I saw him, him working along um, to do the kind of scraping back that you were talking about. But I've also had the incredible privilege working on this last novel to, to have um, Carol Emerson, uh, Emeritus Professor at Princeton, who's fascinated by Shadow reading every single page of my translation, pretty much as I was doing it and giving me huge amounts of um, ideas and um, feedback. That kind of collaboration has been really important in my, I mean, I've had it twice to that level. The first, the first long book I did was with my newspaper editor in Russia. So he was a Russian, but totally bilingual on a kind of Nabokovian level. Um, who did a, a sort of paragraph by paragraph critique of my translations, uh, my first translations. And, and now I've had the, 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 the really good fortune of having Carol at my side while, while doing this novel. Um, and that kind of collaboration for me has also been, um, um, yeah, uh, very formative. Um, because yeah, it's, it's difficult when one talks about collaboration and translation, sometimes one thinks, can't you do, can't one do translation by consensus? Could you not do a group translation of, of this novel or of this book of poetry? You're shaking your head and I, I, I sort of think the same. And similarly, when you see old classic translations of Tolstoy being revised by a modern scholar or, or whatever, for me, you, you feel a kind of, I don't know, there's a sort of tension that I can't quite get work around when I, when I read it. So it sounds like we feel the same that it, that it is an, an individual task of translation but these are these are, these aspects of collaboration are, are crucial too um, um i'm just looking at the time see how we're going with we haven't talked about what we're we going to get on to retranslation yes i've got some i've actually got some quotes i i from the end uh, of um the sharaf from uh carol's end piece in oh, the yes. middle. Mm -hmm. She says a couple of things that's wonderful. Um, how, so a quote from Epstein that, that Shara felt history organically as an extension of his own eye. And I was thinking that was just so fantastic because in some senses that applies, I think also to Maria Stepanova that she is feeling history, 20th century history through her own persona, her own, um, her own self. And that's true of not just of In Memory of Memory, but her poetry to Spoiler and War of the Beasts and the Animals. In fact, in Spoiler, she sort of explicitly links the, uh, the, the writer, the, the lyric ego, the feminine with Russia, the country. And it's, so there's, I, I was really struck by that. I just wanted to say, as I know we're running out of time and we're not going to be able to go into that in any depth. But also one thing that perhaps we won't manage to talk about, but just really struck me was the idea of um, words, literature being better at summing up history than scholarship because literary words were infinitely imprecise. And that idea really, really struck me because I thought that there's so much 
truth in that, the sort of multiplicity of points of view. Um, and, and it's a really good point in history to even be thinking about this. This is something Sharov said. This is something Sharov said, yeah. Because it helps I, explain why it was that he moved from history to fiction. Yes. What was it that fiction could provide him with that history couldn't? It's a wonderful, wonderful quote about language being infinitely imprecise. Of course, I, I, maybe I'll just finish by saying, what is it like to be a translator of infinitely imprecise words? <laughs> well, yes, I mean, Sharov has written a novel about Gogol, and I think that's where a lot of this comes from. So I've had a recent experience of tra translating yes, some of Gogol's, Gogol's stories. And I don't know, I wouldn't want to call Gogol's language infinitely imprecise, but infinitely... Um, Slippy. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Slippery, yes. Um, where the where the tone is 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 susceptible to so many different evaluations at any given point, um, and uh, um, yes. Um, sorry, maybe maybe this is. I'm not sure whether we want to get onto the whole question of retranslation. I know that there's a conference going on at the moment <laughs> on retranslation, which hopefully I'll be, I'll be talking to, to the participants of that tomorrow. But um, you've had some experience, Sasha, with retranslating uh, some short stories. I remember in your collection of Moscow tales. Oh, yeah. Yes, I did. Um, we, How we did you? Yes, um, uh, I, trans I retranslated. Well, actually, not that many. Um, no. Because uh, the only, in fact, the only one was... Um, Dama Savojko, the Chekhov short story, Lady with a Little Dog, which has been translated probably infinite number of times. Um, but I, actually, I, I just went for it. I didn't read the other mm -hmm. translations and um, just translated it from because I, I loved it and responded to it. So, but I'm not sure that was, that was a very different context in a sense. It was a short story within a book of stories. So I didn't feel as if, you know, I was replacing one definitive translation or, it wasn't quite, um, it didn't quite have that, that same function, I don't think. But that is the, the big question, isn't it? Whether one takes that attitude of, I'm not going to even look at the previous translations and I'm just going to sort of beat my own path or whether one sees the history of translation as something that, you know, where we accrete knowledge as we go along, we, in a way we should draw on predecessors for ideas, approaches, um, and learn, said, learn, learn from what works and from what doesn't work. Um, it, it would be nice to think that the translation moves forward um, over time. Yes, I suppose. I mean, there's ex an extent to which that happens, I think, naturally, because we're creatures of our time and we translate in a different way um, to, you know, Constance Garnett or any of the other sort of interim translators. And we I don't know whether it's a, a move forward or simply a very different viewpoint. Um, I've never felt it to be a, a sort of pyramid, no. <laughs> pyramid scheme. Simply enough, I, I feel really just like simply another reader in, in mm -hmm. a way, pulling on different things, different elements in the story that attract me. Um, and that's, that's always been my approach to translation. I've always felt that it was temporary and contingent in a sense. Um, and the other translators have come after and there've been translation, translators before, but, but it's different of course, if it's a contemporary work because you're often establishing the writer for the first time. So there's other responsibilities. 
to that right. I suppose, I suppose it's a question of whether we think that with successive translations, we are somehow moving closer to the original, you know, that maybe we can never reach it in, in translation, but whether, you know, that, and that's the sort of discourse around translation that, you know, um, uh, these translators are finally bringing out the humor in that work, uh, these translators are finally bringing out the, um, they're no longer smoothing it out, they're roughing it up or whatever, whatever I'm saying. It, it, the discussion about translations that over time, you know, one gets closer to, to this sort of ideal, um, or one takes the view that there is no such thing as, as that original that we're, that we're aiming for. It's all a question of interpretation. But, uh, um, there's one other thing I want to bring up before we pass, hand over to questions, because I'm, I'm thinking this is a torture event and you know, the, the research element. And, uh, one, one question around translation that fascinates me also because I, you know, I, I also um, work as a, as, as a literary scholar. Is what is the, what kind of knowledge does, does translation bring us? What kind, that, that perhaps one doesn't have by approaching the text as a reviewer or a literary critic and vice versa. It's a funny position, isn't it, as a translator, because you're not the author, but you are the author of, a, of the text, of the translation. Mm -hmm. So you're not standing, you're standing where the author should be in, in, in the mm -hmm. case of the translation. And you're not the, you're not the reader, although you were the reader. So you're in a, you're in a curious position and you're inside the text, whereas I think the scholar stands outside the text, the scholar is not part of creating it. So, um, although they can be really, really helpful in interpreting it and illuminating it. So, um, and I'm always really struck by scholarship about works that I've translated because quite often I'll realize that my knowledge about texts that I've translated has been actually quite instinctive um, and not at all um, conscious. And um, when I read the scholarship and I see it written down, I realize it's, it's things I thought about the text, but just simply turned into the translation. So they never appeared in my conscious mind as thoughts. And um, so that's, that's interesting to me. They're quite often things that are unvoiced, but have underpinned how I've seen, seen the text. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally you read things about the text that you utterly disagree with, almost sort of viscerally disagree with, because you, you, you know it differently. It doesn't mean that they're wrong, but simply that you've made a completely different connection with it. How about you? How do you feel both scholar and translator? Well, I know I, I think that there must be a way in which we, we as translators can, yeah. Unfortunately, the practical way, the practical real, realities of life as a translator is that you move, you finish one book and you move on to the next and you don't always have time to write down fully what you've, what you've, um, what, what what insights you've gained by translating, but I do think there must be a um, particular um, access to the text that's gained by having to think about every single word, you know, which you have to do when you're translating. And whereas, you know, when you are, um, I'm just thinking of myself and not anybody else, but when you're trying to write a, um, um, a an article, a, an article of literary scholarship inevitably you will focus on a particular section of the text probably or particular features of the text and inevitably you'll sort of not have time and or you may just find it convenient to pay much less attention to, to other parts. So, um, so it's the fact that the kind of slow and total reading that translation involves um, I think does have a lot to give to um, 
to to our understanding of, of literature. Um, I think particularly in terms of form and in terms of language and in terms of how authors create the effects that they create. I mean, with on crime and punishment, I, I felt like I learned a lot about why it was that, you know, in, in, in the part one, when we're in Raskolnikov's mind and um, almost constantly as he's, as he's preparing to do the murders, you know, Dostoevsky uses such a sort of limited range of vocabulary, you know, this kind of neurotic circling around, around, around certain words. Whereas, you know, then as the novel moves out, becomes a more sort of traditional 19th century novel, you get a much fuller sort of vocabulary. That, 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 that is kind of minor, I mean, it's not a minor point, but that's just one example of the sort of thing which I think one um, becomes very aware of almost um, whether you want to be or not when you're translating that you would, you, would, you, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily notice as a reader. I mean, I'm also, I've also been shocked now because I reviewed Beer's Children, this novel I've just translated. I reviewed it when it came out in Russian. When I look back at that review, I don't recognize the novel anymore from, from where I am now. So um, it, yeah, it's, it, I, think, I think it's a very interesting question that, 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 you know, in the humanities, we can think more about how to, you know, the synergy between translators and researchers. Um, and maybe this, I don't know, maybe this is a good moment to bring in, yes. to bring back um, Katrina and uh, see what questions, I see there are some questions that have come up in the chat. Um, yes, I'm just reappearing. Thank you very much. That was fascinating and not only a dialogue between translators, but of course, a discussion of translation as dialogue. I mean, that was um, extraordinary the way you were able to bring that out and your relationship with the the authors and I mean, this sort of Michael Bakhtin's uh, concept of dialogue, which is sometimes taken as essentially a formal um, investigation, but now a lot of specialists on Bakhtin think that this, this actually has a sort of communicative and also a sort of moral and possibly even theological dimension to it. Um, but I didn't want to sort of talk really about that, that kind of philosophy. I mean, I, I, I do want to pick up a couple of the questions that have, have, have come in. Um, one of them deals with the, um, the question of choosing to retranslate. And I think we've actually dealt with that uh, quite fully beforehand. I mean, fortuitously. Um, I, I wanted to ask, so, I mean, first of all, to throw a bit of a spanner in, in the works. I mean, there was sort of one, one comment was just simply about the uh, perfectibility of translation. And it occurs to me that, I mean, to make a rather banal comment, perhaps, that one obvious way in which that doesn't apply is to do with realia that we've lost. I mean, if you think about translations from the classical Greek, I mean, the fact that we just simply don't understand, even from archaeology, a lot of that world, um, something which is nearer to our own, own time. I mean, the German historian Reinhard Kosolek has talked about the fact that really equiculture, I mean, the culture of the horses now disappeared. We no longer live with ho horses in the same way. And I mean, Tolstoy is a horse-obsessed writer. And I mean, I think it really does matter that modern people don't really understand the horse in the same way. And that Elmer Maud, of course, was a translator at the time and actually did understand these realia. So that's just one observation. When it comes to back to throwing a spanner in the works, I, I mean, I think things have changed. I mean, there was a really sort of, it was very difficult for Russian authors if we're talking at the end of the Soviet period to feel kind of trust for people who were translating them. I mean, they lived in a culture they considered isolationist. They didn't really see how Westerners were going to understand it. So I think my first experiences with Russian writers, which were in some cases exceptionally difficult, um, are not characteristic these days. I mean, you know, obviously you can build up trust relationships and um, things have altered in that respect. Um, but I have had problems which may be sort of more widespread, which is that sometimes writers have got a key informant. They don't feel that they know the English terribly well themselves, but they have a friend who kind of apparently does. And I think that can get very difficult. 
um, because almost always in that situation, the person concerned has an extremely um, fundamentalist attitude towards the authorial text. They're not really prepared to allow any deviation from it. And then the, the accusations of Atsibiatin, I mean, this sort of putting yourself into the text tend to proliferate. So I was just wondering whether that was something that you'd come across or whether you, there were sort of ways in which relationships, obviously not with these two authors you've been mainly talking about, but with others perhaps at an earlier stage could have been difficult. And then the other situation which can become difficult is with publishers as gatekeepers. So their sort of conception of what the, the um, reader can um, understand. I mean, I, I found, you know, you know, again, my experience of this goes back some time, but it used to be really quite tricky often with American publishers because, you know, if they were major sort of high street publishers, as it were, because their notion of what readers were, were likely to understand. And I mean, an example of, of this, which has sort of stayed with me is um, an American publisher altering people talking in the Kurilka, so the, the smoking room of a, a, a Soviet workplace, and replacing that by by the water cooler, which of course you would now find in a in a Russian office, um, you know, sort of supplied by the plastic barrels by the various sort of water distribution companies, but nobody in the late 1980s had even heard of, and the whole idea of buying water at that stage would have seemed grotesque. So I suppose it's it, it's it's those, and I think that it's probably taking you too too far away from the sort of very sensitive discussion that you've had. Maybe you don't want to talk about it at all and you haven't come across those problems, but I just wondered whether you wanted to say a word or two about that. Well, I mean, maybe Sasha, uh, the question of, perhaps this isn't exactly what you're asking, Katrina, but about, you know, Maria Stepanova does have excellent English, doesn't she? And she also has a very good yeah. knowledge of Anglo-American literary culture, doesn't she? I mean, was yeah. that, mm. is she able, I mean, or does that interfere in any way or is it an advantage in the process? I meant to ask before. She famously said in an interview that she reads a book a day. Um, so her literary understanding of uh, Anglo-American literature is far better than mine. And quite often I, I talk to her and she recommends books to me, books that she's chewed up in a day, you know, that she, I remember she actually gave me all the Ali Smith books because she was over and she'd read them all and she passed them all on to me. So I feel in some ways um, I, she's so extremely knowledgeable and so well immersed in um, in Russian and uh, English language literature that it's really, really helpful always to talk to her. And she's, she's, uh, I mean, she's a translator's dream because she, she accepts very much that you have to change uh, what you're translating in order to make it resonate sometimes. And other times you can stay very close and she's just very um, aware of all of that. And I've never, if she makes a suggestion, I always accept it because I know that she's never likely to say something sort of gratuitously. It's always going to be founded in her, her rather brilliant understanding of the literary culture. So that's not been a case with Maria. However, I wanted to say that it certainly was a case in the 90s because the Soviet, post-Soviet world and the, 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 the kind of English language world was so different culturally that often that you would find these moments of friction. And I think one of the things particularly hard was um, when I was doing play translations of obscenities because the, the Russian um, theatre world had limited tolerance for obscenities on stage. And it's, I mean, it still does, it's illegal now, but um, you would, if you brought a, an English language play to Russia, uh, we, they, they, they usually, the translation would get rid of all the obscenities. And there was one case where a pretty well-known uh, British playwright went out to Russia. Mark Ravenhill. 
No, not Mark Ravenhill. Okay. He was he was great. Okay. I'm not going to say who it is, but it wasn't Mark. He was brilliant. But um, they came out to Russia and they had a sort of informant who told them that all the obscenities had been taken out of their play and they were absolutely horrified. So they all had to go back in. And uh, we all just sort of wrung our hands because we knew that the audience wouldn't be able to cope with it. And it was true. The first night, half the audience left loudly in, in, as, the, as the play proceeded. I think those sort of cultural differences are always really, really fascinating. And um... well, I was I was working at the Moscow News at the time that um, Sandrik, who you know, Sasha, so Sandrik Rodionov was translating Mark Ravenhill's most famously um, obscene play, Shopping and etc. And he was calling me up in the in the in the newsroom, asking me to explain to him this or that phrase um, from the play, which was always very. But interestingly, they called it <laughs> shopping and fucking because yes. um, it was so much less um, difficult for everyone. If it was. Um, in terms of the gatekeeper question, Katrina, that, that gives me the chance, firstly, to say how grateful I am to Eric Lane at, at Daedalus, who who publishes the Sharov, because he is so committed to, to Sharov, I don't, I don't know, I would have found another publisher. So it's not always gatekeepers. Sometimes you find publishers who just share your enthusiasm and that's, that's, that's wonderful when that happens and it's absolutely essential. I mean, I wonder who the role gatekeepers are sometimes. I mean, I, I think agents have a very important role, you know, which authors do, do the big agents decide to, 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 to take up um, as much as publishers. Um, I, my, my impression working with publishers is that they are guided as much as they themselves make the decisions in a way. They have, they have either their trusted translators or they, or they are persuaded by this or that um, proposal or this or that prize that's been won in a different country. So I'm not sure, I don't know, at least in my experience, it's not so much that publishers are keeping authors out as um, yeah, how they get to their attention in the first place, because there used to be clearly a much more efficient system of reporting, readers' reports, I think, you know, that, um, that, that seems to have, to a large extent, fallen in, into abeyance. Um, so I wonder often how well-informed publishers, the, the big publishers are. I mean, there's, there are so many, you know, independent publishers doing amazing work with foreign literature now. And the situation has improved massively compared to 10 or 15 years ago, especially, I mean, not especially, but from what I know of Russian, and I'm sure it's true of MSCs of, Korean literature and uh, you know, Chinese, Japanese is, is amazing growth. So clearly, clearly things are going in, in the right direction overall. Yes, I mean, I would certainly distinguish myself and I just say high street publishers in the past that there would be this sort of sense of, you know, a particular sort of um, possibly not very well-informed readership, which is a paradox because I think only rather well-informed readerships would tend to buy foreign fiction in any case. but. Um, if we can just move on to something else, another question that's, that's come through was, was to do with um, something that's, that both of you mentioned, which is about the kind of, uh, more particularly, Sasha, perhaps about the sort of anxieties before you start and the sort of scrutiny of your process. And um, I've been asked to pass on a question, which is about whether um, this actually alters, I mean, as you get more experience, say that, I mean, do you get a sort of stronger sense or is it always you, a new text? as my own experience of translation would suggest, I, I must say that, you know, there's always a challenge. Um, and, you know, um, do you feel better equipped for it or do you not? Um, if I could pass, pass that, that, that back to you, perhaps. Sasha, do you want to start or shall I? You start, Oliver. I, I can, I mean, my anxieties start after publication day. I find, I find so my worst experience ever in, in translation was when 
uh, I mean, I, re- I loved working on Crime and Punishment, but after it was published, because now, because now publishers can you know, print on demand much more quickly and you get many more opportunities if you want to, to make corrections. And, um, and I had it in my mind, I must not do this. But I, I just, I finished this project, I'm not gonna go back to it. And then, um, you know, I, was, I got an email from the managing editor or whatever saying, you know, we're, we're going to be republishing soon. So, you know, if you want to make any changes. And then, uh, and then I sat down with it, read through it again against my better um, wisdom really and spent three weeks uh, <laughs> furiously crossing some bits out and putting them back in and in the end I got myself into a complete muddle about it and just chucked the book in the post and said to Penguin asking him to make to make the changes it was it wasn't there, there weren't that many I dropped most of them out by that point the point being that I find the actual process of translation quite um, enjoyable and uh, largely anxiety not anxiety free but you know, there's a sense of progress, there's a sense of uh, momentum that develops. And then I particularly enjoy the, 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 the phase of um, working on the, on the draft once it's finished and, and shaping it. Um, but it's the bit after, once it's been published, once you suddenly, your, your words are suddenly fixed on the page, that's when I find anxiety creeps in and it's almost better just not to look back too much and just to carry on to the next project. Yes, I mean, I think Sasha was talking about responsibility as well, so that, I mean, maybe that's something slightly different from the, from anxiety. So anyway, over to you, Sasha. So. Uh-huh, well, it's sort of related, but I was just going to say how you treat the text differently when you're translating and when it becomes a thing. And that also is how it, how it so when you, when you first read it, if you think you're going to translate it, you're reading it in a very kind of quizzical way. Can you do this? Is it possible? Then you start translating in your looking at it almost like a sort of map. Um, you're, you're reading it like a map. It's going to, you know, where is it going? And then you, you start reading back your own um, translation and you're correcting it. And then at some stage down the line, all of a sudden it becomes a, a text again that you're reading. And, it, and I had that moment with In Memory of Memory, probably about the third time I did the, the proofs because um, it's been published in America and the UK and I was doing the proofs for each one and the third time I did the proofs and I thought they were more or less there I mean there was there's always stuff to do but it was okay and I started reading a chapter about Jodic who is uh, Maria's distant relative but who served on the Leningrad front in the second world war and was killed and that particular chapter in the book is really affecting um, and I started reading it and it suddenly really affected me. I just, I was, I just suddenly found I was crying, and I hadn't actually had that that response to the chapter at any point until then. And I wondered if that's the same for you, Oliver. That there's a point when you suddenly go back to seeing the whole endeavor again in terms of a text that's closed and can affect its reader, rather than some sort of roadmap that you have to proceed along. Uh, no, I mean I do see the process of translation as one of discovery. Yeah, uh, and um, no, I, I think I do. I have had that the same experience really that, that you describe of, of, um, but it's not even that you then have the same necessarily re- emotional reaction to the text that you did when you read it in the original language. It's actually something entirely, entirely new because by that point that you're rereading it in your own translation, your understanding of the whole book has has obviously developed a lot, a lot, a lot more from from that first time you read it in in Russian. So. Um, yeah, no, I don't see it as a kind of linear itinerary that you follow. It, it is, it is um, process of discovery and, and deepening of your of your understanding of the text, and so it does create moments like that, certainly. 
that's why we do it presumably i don't know Yes, there's just one sort of short question, which is about formal organization um, was applied particularly to poetry, but I think to some extent, of course, that might apply to Russian prose as well, because it's got a very specific rhythmic structure, um, which may be syntactic as well. So perhaps just very briefly, I mean, um, how do you feel about that agnostic, I mean, sort of dependent on the case, or do you kind of have a commitment, um, a particular commitment to sort of honoring the rhythmic formal organization of the text? Um, maybe turning to Sasha first, and then um, Oliver might have something to add to that. Oh, yes, I really do. And in fact, that was my problem with translating prose, that I used to treat every sentence like a line of poetry and try and keep something of the rhythm. Um, and I fought for that quite hard in the editing process as well. If I thought I could get away with it and without it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly stilted or it didn't inhibit the understanding, um, the reader's understanding, then I tried to keep that because it's so important to me. You can hear, it's important to me that you can hear the Russian um, in, in the English. Um, and I don't know if, if you feel like that as well, Oliver, but I feel really strongly committed to that sound as well as the meaning, but the sound of, of someone speaking that feels integral to the text. And as far as possible, I, I really strive to keep that. And it's, it's of course, much easier in drama um, and in, um, in poetry. And, and by keeping the Russian through the English, you mean? Well, you can't, always, you can't always reproduce the word order, but there are certain aspects of the word order that you desperately want to keep because there's so much, there's so much about the, the voice and, um, the fall of the sentence, you know, there's a sort of point that the sentence falls away from. And you feel if you reorganize that into something very, very English, then something will be lost. There'll be some tonal drop or some shift that will be, be lost. So I, I do fight, I mean, I know you can't, you can't always do it. Perhaps you can't do it most of the time, but I do fight for that. And that's, that's part of the big struggle for me that every sentence is a sort of miniature struggle over the loss of, <laughs> of sounds. I find it's almost the other way around in a sense that I find myself drawn to creating rhythmical patterns um, and that sometimes I'm bringing them in where when I look back at the Russian, they're not necessarily there. Uh, and then you have, you know, you, you, you need to ask yourself whether, um, you know, you, you need to, you need to, you need, you should actually be, be aiming towards it, towards a text that's more amorphous, perhaps, in what you're creating. So, um, yeah, I'm always on the watch out for, 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 for kind of natural tendencies I have towards certain, um, for certain features almost unconsciously, and I try to sort of, when I can, rein them back, but I don't always do so, um, including not always respecting the word order. Carol has been excellent with 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 the shadow for, for 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 doing just what you mentioned. You know, often there is a real, although the English might more naturally want to want to rearrange the word order, um, put the noun closer to the beginning or whatever. Um, there can be there can definitely be many cases where that consideration should be trumped by the fact that the placing of of, of the word at that particular point. Is, is, is needs to be preserved. So, um, yeah, I mean, these are things we, all, we obviously all always think about on a case by sentence by sentence basis. But I, I think I think both of us put, place quite a lot of stress on actually reading out our translations, um, and and that 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 certainly is an important part of the process that we haven't talked about. Yeah, 
I like the idea, just, just briefly to extend on that, that perhaps not so much in prose, but in poetry and perhaps drama, you can really affect what people are writing in English uh, by, by doing things that haven't necessarily been done before in translation. And that, um, that people might then pick up on that as a ploy or a possibility in writing original work in English. And I know that happens. I mean, I do that myself. I read translations from other languages and they affect how I see English and how I think English can be used. And so they sort of extend the possibilities a bit for other writers. And I, I do see that as a little bit of a responsibility too, to, yeah. to, to, in, to enrich English, I suppose, with new, new, new mm -hmm. sounds, and new shapes. This, this is absolutely wonderful. I mean, there are a few things more depressing than when people talk about how a translation should sound like an English poem, as if there were just kind of one canonical poem in the English language. And I think the idea of broadening the language, the sort of creative expansion that you have dialogue with the receiving language is, 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 is absolutely amazing. And I mean, what, what's so fantastic about your translations is they aren't flat and, and well-mannered in the way that sometimes has been the pattern. And also that you are treating writers, I mean, in dialogue with writers, who have got voices, you have your own explicit voices, and it's not this same um, kind of late 19th, early 20th century pattern of translating a, a load of authors just because they happen to be famous, um, which was a sort of retreat back to that about sort of 10, 15 years ago, which was actually, I think, definitely a step backwards. But as we're not going to reach, reach a conclusion, I think we should leave it there. Um, and um, just thank both of you very warmly for an absolutely fascinating discussion. And um, with that, I shall um, also sort of step back and I think um, Wes is about to uh, say goodbye to us all, so I just... I am indeed. Uh, before I do, I'd like to uh, echo your thanks, Katrina, to both Sasha and Oliver. That was a really, really interesting discussion, and I find myself both agreeing and disagreeing with you at various exciting points. Um, and in a sense, that's that's part of the point, really, isn't it? Um, but I think that where you ended up, which is the idea that the, the sort of practice of translation also changes changes you as a writer and change and opens up the possibilities of what's sayable in one's own language. I think it's really, really interesting. Uh, and to do the full loop takes us right back to what Katrina said at the beginning about the kind of the worth of studying uh, other languages. It's not just to kind of learn how to how to be somebody else in another language, but also how to relate differently to one's own language and one's own set of you know, cultural norms and so on. Um, I hope I'm not putting words into your mouths there, but it did seem to me that that's, that's one of the, the places that, 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 that you were, were, were working within. Um, so thank you ever so much for a really um, instructive, um, and I would say another great thing about today's discussion is that the, the sort of humanities cultural program part of the point really is to put together research and practice and to see where they they're in dialogue um you know it's not like research is over here and then poetry is over there or practice or translation or something else is over there you've both really wonderfully demonstrated um the the intermingling and the and the the dialogue in the bactinian sense of of that uh, of those uh, of those different but nonetheless intimately connected activities so thank you ever so much both of you for a really really nourishing um hour and a bit of of thinking and talking um i think that brings us to the end of this session then um as i say thank you to our brilliant speakers sasha and oliver and also our chair katriana for this wonderful event and to all the viewers at home for your questions for watching uh, and for your continued 
interest in, in what's going on here um, in this big tent. Um, the last thing I should say is to say that um, we'll continue again next week. Um, Thursday at 5 p.m. will be the last big tent of this term, um, where Homi Baba will be in conversation with Elizabeth Fraser from the politics department here, um, another colleague of Katrina's at New College, um, Wale Adebanwi, who's the uh, professor of race relations, and also Stephen Tuck, the historian. But, uh, they'll be discussing uh, a number of uh, sort of recent themes in uh, around the fragility of democracy, um, at conspiracy theories, um, and also just sort of the place of culture within um, the, uh, the global political uh, scene at the moment. Um, thank you again to everyone involved in this evening, including the back backstage team at Torch, um, and goodbye for now. <laughs>